Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to all my regular listeners at Money and Plants. This is episode number 42 of the show and what a show it is I have coming up in a few minutes time. To all my new listeners, you're really, really welcome. I have a library of 41 previous conversations and this conversation is April's edition of the podcast. For regular listeners, you now know that I produce one show a month and I'd probably say this every month. But this is a special edition of the podcast because coming up in a couple of minutes time, I have one of the top, top doctors in his field to talk to all of us about brain health and how to achieve optimum, optimum brain health. I have got Dr. Tommy Wood coming up right now, a UK trained medical doctor with a PhD in physiology and neuroscience. Tommy received an undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge before going on to Oxford to finish his medical degree. He worked as a junior doctor in London, spent some time in hospitals in Norway, but right now Tommy is working at the University of Washington as a postdoc where he has an assistant professor of paediatrics. Where Tommy really comes into his own and to keep this really, really simple, the way I like to communicate with people, it's a simple conversation. Tommy is an expert on brain health. He knows all about the brain, how we optimize the brain, what's good for our brains, what's bad for our brains. In this conversation, it goes really far and wide. And to be fair to Tommy, he really played the game with me. It's it's a super fast, super quick question and answer session. I have so many questions that I wanted to ask Tommy about the brain. Obviously, most of us, we know that we all have a brain, but we really don't know much about it, actually. It's one of those, and I, and I raised this with Tommy in the conversation, it's one of those things that we sort of know we have it, but we don't really know that much about it. And for the most important organ in our body, I think that's wrong. Because I think the more information that we have on everything, the better decisions then we can all make in our own lives. I get into lots of subject matter here with Tommy in this. It's about a 35-minute conversation. Get a pen and a notebook ready. Take some notes. Re-listen to it. Share it with a friend. I think it's a really, really excellent excellent conversation one of my favorite shows without me continuing to rabbit on what i'll do is i'll play the tape this is me and dr tommy wood a couple of days ago and i'll wrap up as usual after this conversation with dr tommy wood Dr. Tommy Wood, it's an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast, Money and Plants. I'm talking to you from Belfast, you in the United States. How are you keeping? How are you feeling today? Are you looking good? Yeah, yeah. Um, very good. Thank you. Might get a little bit of sunshine today. Definitely need some of that. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, look, it's a real honor. As I was saying before I hit record, I've been on this sort of amazing health transformation sort of this last five to six years, and I've got a I've built up a sort of big community of people who are interested in, in getting healthy and changing their life outcomes and their health outcomes. And of course, central to that is brain health and achieving optimum brain health. And it's probably a subject matter that we don't talk a lot about because most people don't really know much about our brains and, and brain yeah. health. And it's not every day you buy into a neurologist at the shop <laughs> so, you know, so it's a real honor because i know you're top of the field in this game but before we dive into it because uh, of loads of really good questions just a brief intro you get into medicine um in england and cambridge and, and oxford i think and how then did you yeah. find your way into neuroscience and talking about this wonderful topic of brains yeah yeah sure i'll, I'll try and I'll try and keep it short but you're right so i 
lived most of my life uh, in the UK. I grew, I grew up in Bristol. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Cambridge in biochem. I specialised in biochemistry. Then I went to med school at Oxford. Um, I was working as a junior doctor for a couple of years. Did my foundation training in central London, um, and then when I was coming to the end of that, I couldn't decide what kind of doctor I wanted to be. And uh, a professor whose lab I'd done some work in as an undergrad, she'd moved over to Norway and was like, well, why don't you just come and do a PhD while you figure out what you want to do with your life? And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, so that uh, was sort of like my first foray into real uh, neuroscience. Um, and so my day job is I'm a, I'm a neonatal neuroscientist. I look at ways to treat the injured newborn brain. Um, but alongside all of that, yeah, myself, I consider myself an athlete um, and I have uh, trained a number of athletes and coached. I'm a performance consultant for athletes in a wide range of sports, uh, professional athletes. And so I'm really interested in the, sort of the, the intersection between health and performance, how that starts early in life, how that sort of translates across the entire lifespan. Um, and actually, my first kind of real dive into all the different ways that the environment um, and genetics and diet and all that kind of stuff could influence uh, health was actually in multiple sclerosis because my um, stepbrother was diagnosed with MS uh, and we sort of took this look at the literature and said, you know, if we just sort of ignore what we think we know about MS, we just like start from first principles. What are all the things that might be important? And we sort of, then we figured out, you know, the, there are environmental components, dietary components, genetic components. We sort of started to piece this stuff together and that kind of, led me into the, the idea that you know, actually what we do and what we expose ourselves to can really have a, a huge uh, impact on our health and, and, and maybe there are some things that we can do that wouldn't necessarily be recommended by the, the normal medical establishment. Um, and so that's kind of, that was where my interest started. Now I try and intersect all those different things, basically starting from maybe before you're even born all the way through to the end of your life. How can we maximize the, the health of your brain? Yeah, it's it's such a, a fascinating subject matter. It's it's sometimes really difficult to figure out. Well, where where do you start whenever we talk about this? But I suppose you know, human beings, we we all sort of we're we're nine months in the womb and then we're born. Like, at what point does the brain start to really develop and grow? And and as a human, then and that human experience from from a young infant, the the sort of life and how life and the environment would impact the child growing up. Has that like how does that impact upon the young brain and its development if that makes sense like do do things from not to 10 years of age do those does that environment that upbringing really impact how that particular brain may develop yeah absolutely so the the neural tube closes and you get your sort of spinal cord and the beginnings of the brain developing you know in the first sort of third of of pregnancy and but this sort of continues um your brain continues to develop and sort of cement itself basically until your late 20s, early 30s. Um, so, I mean, decades in, in the development, uh, your, your brain is. And the sort of the peak period of brain growth is around normal birth. So that's when, you know, all the nutrients are really being funneled into expand uh, the brain, like right before you're born and then in, in the sort of months after you're born. But the final sort of set of connections are, and the, the final myelination. So the people may, and obviously uh, critical uh, in multiple sclerosis particularly, but the, so a set of neurons in your brain have these sheaths around the myelin sheaths are basically mm -hmm. 
these fat cells that make the the conduction faster so that you know these are the the neurons that are there for like really fast transmission of, of information and those final that, that final myelination the final development of those connections is really sort of cemented in in your in your 20s or 30s so up until that point your brain is continuously acquiring information to sort of set what your so your final brain but actually your, your brain continues to be plastic we call it. It, it it continues to be able to adapt for your entire life um we've been previously been told that once you're an adult you have a fixed number of brain cells every time you have uh a drink you kill some and you know no they, they never come back but re in reality your brain is much more resilient and plastic through your entire life but we sort of think about it finishing development maybe in your 20s but the that, that, that critical period you know up to you know sort of 10 years old or so, like you mentioned there, there's some really interesting stuff uh because that period um of time is is really where the brain is the, the development is driven by the environment and one of the best examples that i have of that is in uh, uh babies or kids who are born prematurely or they have some kind of issue around birth and they get some kind of brain injury and this is relatively common particularly premature birth if um you have some kind of brain injury you're in the in the hospital as a baby um if you then go into a very rich environment and i almost mean that rich as in financially because it's kind of looked at in terms of socioeconomic status so if your mother has like a, a high level degree and with that comes more income access to better food access to better childcare you know access to more cognitively stimulating processes better education right so like you get this whole different you know set of environmental experiences based on that kind of stuff um if you have some brain injury early in life but you go into a high socioeconomic status environment basically that brain injury doesn't matter you you adapt you overcome and you have and you have perfectly normal cognitive function and cognitive outcomes if however you go into a more deprived environment um and again this is sort of like the proxy is mat is maternal education or socioeconomic status then that brain injury does seem to have an effect so the exact components of the environment that then you know allow the brain to adapt and and grow you know we're still sort of figuring those out but we can see that the environment that you go into uh, particularly when we have sort of economic or societal inequities, they can sort of make things worse. Whereas you can have a protective environment that can that can make things better. So, the the brain is incredibly good at adapting and responding to the environment, but the, the environment needs to be there for that to happen. Okay, so let me ask. Hopefully, it doesn't turn as a silly question. But whenever, so say for example, you cut your finger, um, does the brain is the brain the nerve center? So to, does everything that happened in your body does that come as a result of some, uh, a decision made in your brain which triggers off a reaction in your body to start the healing process or whatever. The, the context of this is that whenever I was diagnosed with MS, I, I, I was very, very healthy and very fit and semi-professional footballer up until 28 and then I got uh, a, a, an attack out of the blue and then for the next four or five years I had lots of symptoms. But I was told by a lot of the medical profession told me that a lot of my symptoms would stay forever, that it could the nerve damage couldn't really be prepared, repaired and all of that. But actually I've 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 went through this incredible healing and recovery and repairing years of, of, of things which have now happened, which I was sort of 
thinking would maybe not happen and maybe the medical people around me thought was nearly impossible, right? But what I'm wondering is, and I'm, I'm very aware that the body's always trying to heal itself all the time. I just have to try and facilitate that by the choices that I make in my own life. So it, does the brain fall into that? Like, does the brain decide on all of these things that happen in the body? Like, is that where it all happens? Or do they subconsciously happen anyway? Well, it's, a, it's probably a, a, a bit of both, right? Some some things are locally regulated. So, right, okay. you know, there's, there's, there's some components of, say, the immune system, if you're, if you're responding to a cut on your finger or something like that, okay. that, would, that would just happen, you know, automatically doesn't require any input from the brain. Um, but the brain does regulate certain aspects of the immune system, how well you respond to things, how well you adapt to stuff. So there's sort of like um, both sort of acute, we call them all, you know, like the, the very early responses are sort of um, pre predefined. They don't require any input from the brain, but longer term stuff may require um, some input for the brain and, and from the brain. And we also know that, you know, how you, you think or you approach things or your expectations, um, they can also affect your physiology that then may affect how you respond to an injury or something like that. So, you know, even though, you know, something's happening at, in another part of the body, in multiple ways that the brain can have some uh, input in that, being being both you know, positive and negative. Right, so you've touched upon something which is really interesting and I'm writing a new book at the moment and I'm talking about what I'm just about to ask you. So is there a can you improve your health outcome or uh, in terms of your attitude towards your circumstances? So if you have a positive approach to, to whatever is going on in your life, or if you have a very negative approach each and every day, is there a difference in the outcomes of those two particular people? So we think so, yes, but it's difficult to know what's chicken and egg. And that's something that that, that is, is still sort of being worked on, right? So we know things like if you, if you rate your um, quality of, if you rate your health well, you live longer. Like how you how you perceive your own health is a, is a good predict is a is a predictor of your long term health as well as your risk of mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, how you perceive things like aging are the same. So if you have a positive perception of aging, like aging is something that just happens, it's not necessarily bad. You know, I'm getting more experience, I'm becoming wiser. Those people live a longer time than people who are you know think negatively about these processes. Um, however, the, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of, you know, maybe you think uh, negatively about things because your your health is already worse, and we know that inflammation can um, is associated with certain types of depression and other things. So if you have poor health, that may then change your outlook on stuff as well. So it goes in both directions. Um, however, we know that if you expect a negative outcome, you are more likely to get one. Uh, just like if you expect a positive one, you're more likely to get a positive one and there's interesting so people have, have heard of the placebo effect right you you, you get a drug or some kind of treatment yeah. even if it's there's nothing active in there it can actually beneficially affect your health or you know reduce your symptoms and that the placebo effect works even if you know it's a placebo so like even if you know there's no active drug even that can can provide benefit, but we also see the opposite. We see something called nocebo. So if we expect something detrimental, we can measure changes in the physiology that you know the brain is driving 
that can then contribute to a negative outcome. I don't think you can just say, hey, you should be positive about your health and about aging and about your life. And all of a sudden that's going to, you know, fix all your health problems. Because I think, you know, these things go in both directions. But it does seem that if we accept our health and, you know, we're sort of happy with it, I, I think more of it, rather than being positive, maybe more sort of like a stoic type philosophy. Like we accept what we can't change and we try and change the things that we can. Um, and I think that gives us some more feeling of control, mm -hmm. uh, which, which, you know, and the, the, the lack of control or lack of feeling of control is something that people often struggle with. So, so like that kind of approach, I think is probably going to be beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's, there is a potential downside with just always thinking positive because it doesn't, you know, if you just say, we well, just have to think positive, mm -hmm. it doesn't allow you to process negative or difficult emotions, which you should do. So there's kind of multiple different aspects to it. Yeah. Um, but it does come back to the fact that how you think about your health and about uh, your experiences and these other things can affect your physiology that then may affect uh, your, your health outcomes. Yeah, it's just, it's just amazing that how you actually, what you think about and how that can impact your physiology. And I have to say that I have walked the walk in that regard Tommy, because for four years, I didn't want to talk about my MS, my illness. I didn't want to go out of the house. I was a very outgoing person, very much into sport. And I felt myself and my symptoms exacerbating and getting worse. It was only around 2011, actually, when I was asked to do the marathon. And I said, right, hang on a minute. I'm going to change my approach to this. That actually things started to improve for me and my symptoms started to degrade. So it's, it's amazing to hear you saying that. And I, I have, I have come across that. So there is actual data on that then what you've just said, that's a fact. Oh yes. So the, you know, this all comes from epidemiological studies where you ask people about these things and then you look at their long-term health outcomes. Um, you, so you can see this with, you know, self-perceived, um, quality of health, uh, perception of aging. We talked about there are, there are other nice data looking at, how much exercise you think you do compared to people like you and after adjusting for a whole bunch of health stuff and the amount of exercise you actually do if you think that you're doing less than others right so you're constantly thinking that you're not doing enough that can have a negative effect on your health even if you're doing plenty of exercise mm -hmm. so that was a that was a nice piece of data because they because they adjusted for that so so that was a nice piece of uh uh, study that came out of the Enhanes um, data set in the US. So, not so even if you're doing things that are beneficial for you, like exercise, if you're constantly imagining I should be doing more, other people are doing yeah. more, I'm not yeah. doing enough, yeah, yeah. that in itself could could be having a negative effect. And we could think, you know, you can apply that to exercise, diet, um, time with family, right? If you're constantly thinking I'm not enough, I'm not doing enough, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. That seems to have an effect. Uh, on our physiology that can then affect our, our health negatively. Okay, so very good. A real easy one for you then. So what what, what things can we all do, all of us at, 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 within what we're capable of, to optimize brain health? So the, the, the most important thing for long-term brain health, initial development, and then also preventing cognitive decline, dementia later in life, is stimulating our brains. Um, and so I... You know, to, to make it as simple as possible, I, I think of the brain like a muscle. And if you want to build muscles, you have to stimulate them, right? You have to create mechanical tension. Um, and then you have to give them some period of rest and recovery. 
Um, and, and the brain is almost exactly the same. And so if we don't give the brain enough stimulation early in life, it doesn't develop as, much, as fully as it could. And if we stop stimulating the brain late in life, then we accelerate the rate of, of cognitive decline. So we, we, you see that very nicely. Uh, the amount of education you get early in life um, is that sort of starts the trajectory of, of how long you'll have good cognitive function. And education is one of the best predictors of cognitive function later in life. Um, and then when you retire, and we've seen this in multiple different populations, as soon as you retire, your cognitive um, function starts to decline because in the modern environment, work is the main cognitive stimulus that, that people get. Um, and so when you remove that, all that you see a, a dramatic drop or a dramatic increase in the risk of dementia as soon as, as soon as people retire. And you can overcome that in a number of different ways. So there's protection. So people who speak more than one language, they seem to maintain cognitive function later in life. Uh, people who do things like teaching, which is a significant cognitive stimulus, get the same thing. And so, you know, there are, there are many ways that you can skin that cat. You just have to do something that's challenging to you um, and, and continue to do it. Um, so it could be learning a language. It could be learning... Um, a musical instrument, music seems to be really protective, right? Any kind of skill. Yeah. Um, and then there's an added bonus from skills that have a balance component, right? So some kind of movement practice that is both physically and, you know, uh, physically challenging, but also challenges you from a balance component. So it could be skateboarding or surfing mm -hmm. or a slack line or yoga. Dancing seems to be particularly um, beneficial. And that's because that additional challenge to the brain, um, in addition to just like the physical effort, seems to be really important or really good at sort of protecting cognitive function. So all of those things, um, you know, that, that, that we do in our daily life, like the way that we interact with others, skills there um, and challenges there seem to be really beneficial. And then also some movement ones, particularly if they have a, a, a balance component. Just want to ask you, so I, I play the guitar badly and the piano badly, but if I was uh -huh. to play the piano at a family party and try and sing, it's hard to correlate the two skills because it's like you're asking one side of the brain, there's no connection. But if I'm playing guitar, I can sing away. Mm -hmm. it's, it does feel that there's a physical block in the in the brain motorway for me when I'm playing the piano. I have to focus too much on the, in the playing of the piano, but I can play, play away subconsciously on the guitar. I'm yeah. physically feeling that. Is that what's going on up there whenever you're asking it to do all these different things? Yeah. So, so obviously, those are the, the piano and the guitar for you are probably different levels of challenge. Yeah. And so then adding something on top of that is, is more difficult for one than, right. than the other. What I would say is that for you, playing the piano and singing at the same time is probably something that's worth working on because it's <laughs> yeah. such a challenge. Yeah. Um, and we, like again, from the musical world, um, we see that amateur musicians get more of a benefit in terms of their sort of brain aging than professionals do. And the hypothesis is that if you're an amateur, it's harder. So you yeah. get more of a cognitive challenge, right? As soon as, as soon as you're a professional, I mean, I know it's difficult, I'm, you know, yeah. but it's less of a challenge. So for you, if you wanted to really work on a skill that might promote your long-term brain health, piano plus singing at the same time may be something that's worth working on. And then once you become really good at that, you need to do something else because it's no longer the same challenge that it was. Well, it'll probably take me a long time to become really good at the piano and singing, <laughs> Tom, but that's a good task you've set me. So look, just 
keeping on the we're we're going well here. I wanted to ask you this. So you, it's interesting that you also um you're I don't think you 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 work with sports people um in terms of mindset and that's something I'm really interested in. But why then do some people have a stronger mentality than others? I understand it's a big, mad, wild world and we all grew up in different environments and different homes and different parenting and all the rest of it. But is there, is, has there been any studies that show, well, here's the reasons why different people have different sets of mentalities? Is that a fair question or is it too complex? No, I, I understand it, but I'm not sure there's necessarily um, a good answer. And I think it's also very context-specific. Um, so the, there's probably um, people are going to be more, you know, have more mental strength or more, more mental resilience, whatever you might want to call it, in scenarios where they have some confidence in being able to do that, right? So the if, if we think about this, the effect of some kind of challenge um, and adaptation, just like you need to uh, challenge your brain, and you could probably only do it, really do it for maybe 20 or 30 minutes before you need a period of recovery, just like you know, there's only so many um, reps you can do if you're lifting in the gym or there's so many sprints you can do on the bike or the rowing machine, something like that, right, before you need to rest and recover. You're, you're probably going to see some context-specific stuff from a mental resilience standpoint. So, and where you know that you can be challenged and adapt and, and come back from it, that's probably where you're going to have greater strength. So some people, you know, in different areas of their life, and it could be work, it could be exercise-related, um, it could be other stresses, right? Where where you've built up um, some experience of being able to respond and do the things that, that you want to do, you, then that's probably where you're more likely to be successful. So that's where we think about, we might think about um, habits and things like that. These things become automatic, you know, as you, as you get experience and, and, and you add to them and you, and you adapt and they, they've sort of become part of you. Um, if you were constantly expecting yourself to be to have mental strength and resilience in the face of a whole range of challenges, that's probably not ever going to happen, right? That, you know, this is to some extent a finite resource. Um, so, so I think it, it probably depends a little bit on the opportunity that people have had to experience, you know, small periods of stress or discomfort in an area, you know, and then adapt to it, just like you would adapt to a, a training program. Um, and, and then that that might be that might explain some of the, the difference from person to person. Just in terms of then like negative thinking, I I, I write about the green man because whenever you know I have this subconscious thought, say I'm looking to do another Ironman race, and I've got this voice in my head saying, "Catch yourself on, it's never going to happen. You're never going to do it." You've always like personally, I feel as if any challenge I set myself, not so much now because I've trained my brain. I actually feel I have over the last number of years to. You know, I think if I set a goal, I can achieve it. That's the way I sort of operate. But I wasn't always like this. So I'm just wondering from the listeners who are just have this negative talk in their head. They don't know where it's coming from. Like, is that common with humans? And then how? what's the best way to deal with that? So, so, so I think it is very common. And in some, in some respects, self-doubt is a self-preservation process, right? You're trying to... Present, prevent yourself from being exposed to things that are either, you know, painful or damaging, either psychologically or, or, or physically. Um, and actually, I find it quite, you know, the best people that I know in science and medicine, all this kind of stuff, they have some kind of self-doubt that then allows them to or drives them to, to continuously try and improve or learn something new and then 
you know, change their opinion over time. Um, and if people don't have that, then they're sort of, they become like the gurus who assume they know everything and everybody else is wrong and you should just listen to them and do what they do, which is probably not going to be right. Um, but for those who maybe struggle with, um, so in any particular area, I think the process of, of, of habit formation is, is really where a lot of that will start. So you need to make, make it super easy, super low friction, um, and something that you're committed to, right? You don't need to be motivated. And this is, so I'm, I'm here spouting a bunch of very amateur psychology. And I do know some people who are real psychologists who have, who've, who've maybe helped me understand some of these processes better. So I have a friend called Dr. Simon Marshall, who I've, who's a psychologist that I've learned a lot from. And he talks about the difference between commitment and motivation. Mm-hmm. Motivation fluctuates, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of days I'm not motivated to go and do my mm-hmm. training session. But I'm committed to doing it because I have a competition or a race or something coming up. Right. Mm-hmm. So something that you can commit to that is easy to do for you. So like um, maybe it's only you, you're trying to build up to spending 30 minutes uh, practicing, singing and playing the piano at the same time. But maybe you just like every, you, you decide that every time you walk into the living room, you're just going to do it for a minute. Mm-hmm. Right. So something that in any one given time is super easy to do very low friction. Um, and then you start to build on that and it becomes, it becomes habit and then also gives you confidence in your ability to change and do new things. So, so, um, I know again that not every psychologist is the biggest fan of James clear, uh, but his approach that he lays out in atomic habits, I think is really beneficial for, for a lot of people. Uh, so, so that kind of stuff start starting really easy, low hanging fruit, um, low friction, and then over time you start to build confidence in your ability to do these things, and then you can you you can try you know more difficult multiple things over time. I was just going to say to you that um, I I've been following James the Iron Cowboy for a long time, and he he name dropped uh, James Clear's book, and I'm I'm listening to Atomic Habits at the mm-hmm. minute. It is a it is a really easy tool, and it's a good yeah. tool for people, so I would recommend that. Yeah. Switching yeah. the dial slightly, so. Connection between anxiety and depression and stress with cognitive decline and dementia. Mm. So I suppose cognitive decline and dementia, that's something, um, and we're in the last five minutes here, I don't want to take up much of your time, but just I suppose on cognitive decline and dementia, that's normally something that happens to humans in their older part of their life. Is there any way to, to for maybe the older demographic listening, to reduce that or, or stop that from happening or help in any way with that is, is there any sort of recommendations for older people who are listening who are concerned about that yeah so to, to briefly touch on your, your first question depression anxiety cognitive decline they are they are linked um certainly and you know depression anxiety very common do seem to increase the risk of later uh, cognitive decline and there are there are maybe there are, there are multiple different ways that, that could happen but it could be that they have um similar risk factors so inflammation is we think is responsible for at least a, a, a third of cases of depression you know a, a third of depression sort of relates to inflammation yeah. and we know that systemic inflammation increases the risk of cognitive decline because that kind of chronic inflammation is you know is a stressor for neurons and we, we probably lose them associated with that so they may have inflammation say as a, as a common factor we also know if we go back to the cognitive stimulus thing that i mentioned if you're depressed you're less likely to interact with others go out into the world and that is our most important cognitive stimulus 
So it may be that whatever the cause of your depression, even if it's not inflammation, maybe something else, there are, there are other potential causes. If you're then depressed, you may then not go out and get that same cognitive stimulation that you would get otherwise, and that then may um, increase your risk um, of, of cognitive decline later. So they're definitely related. And then you know, we talk about something nebulous like inflammation, like what even is that? Um, but the, there are a number of things that we know um, can affect the amount of inflammation that we, that we just sort of experience in the body. You can measure with various cytokines, these sort of like inflammatory mediators. And diet is an important one. And pretty much any, there have been multiple studies with multiple different types of diet. Um, and I'm pretty diet agnostic. Um, but any diet that improves food quality seems to be associated with a reduction in inflammation. And we know that that, you know, that improves depression symptoms. Diet quality is certainly a risk factor for long-term cognitive decline. So, so, so diet is one. Um, other things that increase the risk for cognitive decline, uh, smoking, um, excessive alcohol use. And by excessive, I mean basically more than one small glass of wine a night. So that's really not very much alcohol. seems to increase the risk of cognitive decline. Um, making sure you don't have um, you know, diabetes or high blood sugar. Um, and, and again, that could come back to physical activity, uh, body composition, diet, all of that plays a role. Um, once you cover those things, so cognitive stimulus, uh, high, and so that includes social connection and like interacting with others, that's protective for cognitive decline, um, and some dietary components, physical activity, um, adequate sleep, right? Sleep and recovery is really important for cognitive function. Once you cover those things, I mean, I think you're in pretty good shape for mm -hmm. making sure that your brain uh, is, is healthy and functioning for as long as possible. All right, I want to get a question off my Instagram. So for people who suffer from SAD or ADHD suffers, is it possible to train your brain to alleviate winter symptoms? So you know what's coming down the track at winter time. <laughs> uh, or, or is it just a case where you have to leave Ireland? As you know, it's not that sunny <laughs> over here. What do you think? Yes, do you know what? This is a great question. And I do think that uh, there's, there's probably going to be a genetic component that is e most easily described based on who your most recent ancestors were, right? So if your most recent ancestors were of a nor Northern European origin, like mine, my half of my family is Icelandic, so they, they live in the dark for, for half the year, um, you're probably going to be more resilient to those things just because your biology has experienced them for longer, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. Whereas people who live, you know, whose most recent ancestors were closer to the equator, that's maybe not the, the same case. And then that also ties into other things like vitamin D, right? Those, those individuals are probably going to be at higher risk for things like vitamin D um, deficiency, which is certainly related to, to, to mental health. Um, and so you, you can overcome some of this stuff, um, you know, I, I, but I think light exposure really is a very important um, stimulus and regulator of, of human health. So particularly if you, if you suffer from SAD, you know, uh, you can use therapeutic light, um, uh, you know, get, 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 get a light box, um, you know, make sure you're getting outside, even if it's kind of feels kind of dark, that's still more light than you're usually yeah. exposed to inside. So getting outside, uh, using, using um, bright lights inside and, and, what you normally have probably isn't enough. So some kind of like 10,000 Lux light box, you can buy them, you can put it on your desk. Um, I think you, that, that will overcome some of it as well as taking into account, you know, what maybe your biology expects from a recent 
uh, ancestry standpoint and, and sort of working with that as, as much as as much as you can. Okay, fantastic. Final question. So the role of sleep in optimum brain health then, Tommy. So, I mean, I've been sort of studying sleep for years and Matthew Walker's book, and I know it's a big topic and I, I've sort of settled upon, try, I get about seven hours a night. Um, yeah. I try and get eight, seven to eight, but that's sort of where I'm at. How important is it yeah. to get good quality sleep and to wake up at the same time every day and, and, and get used to that kind of habit? Yeah, very, very important. Um, I, I think it's, it's worth saying that we've kind of started to pathologize sleep a bit more. And what, um, what I mean is that we've got to a point where we're so worried about how much sleep we're getting and the quality of our sleep yeah. that can actually have a negative effect. Uh, there are some nice studies where you manipulate how much people s- sleep and tell them that they slept different amounts and that affects their cognitive function, right? So if you sleep for five hours, but I tell you, you slept for eight hours and the clock agrees, you won't have any negative effects on your cognitive function because your body, you can like, believe that yeah, you slept I, enough. Yeah, placebo then? Yeah, so wow. there's, there's a placebo, but then there's also nocebo. If you slept, yeah. this, in the same study, if you slept for eight hours, but I told you you slept for five hours, you'll have worse cognitive function because you think, oh, I didn't sleep well, so I'm not going to perform well. So this is where some of the sleep tracking can backfire. Um, And also, it's worth bearing in mind that where you really start to see an increased risk of, say, all-cause mortality or dementia, those are the things we've kind of been talking about, is probably less than six hours sleep a night, which is much less than you might expect. So so I, you know, if, if if you only sleep, six and a half or seven hours you know i know people who will get really stressed because they didn't sleep eight hours and it's going to negatively affect their health it's going to negatively affect their performance but we don't necessarily have that much evidence to back it up so i think that we're everybody everybody needs to sleep high quality sleep um both in terms of length and quality is really important but um so i'm I've seen like some eyes peeking up over the, uh, the <laughs> yeah, video behind like, you it's very good yeah you're, they're all right they're talking to the dogs yeah, um, but so, so high quality sleep, incredibly important. Um, but we've kind of got to the point where a certain subset of the population, probably people that you and I hang out with, mm. worry about it probably a bit too much. I um, so, so yeah, so focus on sleep. Uh, make sure you're getting eight hours in bed every night. If it's the same time every night, that seems to be more beneficial. Um, but you know, if you if you lose a night of sleep or something. Don't worry about it because in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not that more important. So consistency um, is more important than like getting it the same every night and it having to be the same every night because I worry that that stress in itself could be detrimental. Okay, Tommy, that's fantastic. Listen, where can people find you? Do you do a lot of Instagramming or Twitter or what are you? <laughs> uh, so I try. I try. So Twitter just stresses me out. So I, I, I don't spend much time on there. Um, but I, I'm on Instagram and you're like, like, and I, I post intermittently, but that's where I'll post most of my stuff. So I have Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. And it'll usually be pictures of my dogs uh, or, you know, just some, some random quote or, or something, or maybe a paper that I published. Um, but if you like that kind of stuff, then, then yeah, find me on Instagram. Well, listen, I think you're amazing. I've, I've actually listened to a lot of your stuff over the last sort of number of months. It's been incredible to speak to you in person on the podcast. I know my community will love it. So listen, thank you very much, Tommy. Really appreciate it. And I'll get this up in the next couple of days. Thanks a million, mate. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is great. Hey, everyone. Well, uh, what can I say? 
Dr. Tommy Wood. What a legend of a man. Um, I think one of the standout things I would say about Tommy uh, spending 45 minutes in his company just the other day was he speaks with uh, an incredible amount of clarity. Uh, the brain can be a very complex thing to talk about, but he has this incredible ability of, of breaking things down so that people like me and you can understand exactly what he's talking about. And I thought there was a lot in that conversation which was so powerful, so incredibly important, and just I took a lot of really good learning out of it. Um, so many moments in the conversation, things like, you know, how we actually think about our health how that can impact the physiology, how it can actually change your physiology. And I I said this to Tommy in the conversation, if you recall, that for me personally, whenever I was going through a really tough time with illness myself for four or five years, I couldn't feel myself getting any better. I actually felt as if things were getting worse. And I kind of convinced myself for a period of time that things were maybe going to get worse and that I wasn't I was never going to really get better and I was never going to really recover and I was never going to be able to sort of stop taking the medication I was always going to be injecting for the rest of my life and it was it was very overwhelming and I've, I've written about this and that thought process and that that kind of mentality that I was developing and and facilitating actually with my thoughts was actually making me sicker and that was changing my physiology because my symptoms started to get worse so whenever Tommy says that there's data and research now to, to prove that how we actually think about things can impact our physiology, our health. Absolutely incredible stuff. So the, the takeaway from that is to try and you know stop that negative train of thoughts. How do you do that? There's ways to do that. And then how do you turn the negativity into a more positive approach to dealing with and coping with life? And for me, I've, I've wrestled with that for years and years and years. But thankfully, over the last five to six years, I've been able to sort of manage that and control that and, and really, I suppose, transform and, and change my whole thought process around how I think I was thinking that my life is actually going to play out. And it was only whenever I stopped that train of negative thoughts and started to try and change how I was thinking that things started to improve for me personally. So that's that's a bit of a personal share. But then he talked about, you know, the role of our emotional health, how you feel about yourself, how that can actually impact your health outcome. Again, kind of tied in with your uh, self-esteem, how you think about things. And then I thought there was lots of takeaways in the section where we talked about how to optimize brain health. And I thought it was really interesting where Tommy suggests and the research would back this up that you know to prevent cognitive decline the brain needs stimulation I often think about that because as you know you know I, I do this um, I do an Ironman most years uh, I've done an Ironman triathlon now for every year since 2015 and actually whenever you do a, a, an Ironman or a race or a marathon or something like that from a physical perspective or maybe you've got your own goal to go to the gym over the next three months. You're going to go every day or every three days a week, maybe, or some kind of goal. But that, that stimulation, that, that brain stimulation, is actually improving your brain health. And obviously, it's improving your physical health. So I thought that was amazing to hear Tommy talk about why it's so important to keep stimulating your brain and how he thinks of his brain as a muscle. And we know that if we don't 
exercise our muscles, they will fade away. So rest, recover, um, and to treat your brain similar to the way you would treat your muscles. I thought that was really, really interesting. I also thought it was, for me personally, again, I'm interested in music. I thought it was really interesting that Tommy talked about the power of music in terms of the protective qualities uh, by playing a musical instrument and even learning another language, how engaging in that activity can protect our brains. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Again, he talked about physical challenges are particularly good at protecting cognitive function. Maybe that's why we are encouraged to go for walks and go for runs and maybe engage in maybe uh, a bit more excessive exercise programs like maybe half marathons, marathons, maybe triathlons. But by doing that, that that does have trigger protective uh, measures within the brain. Again, fantastic to hear someone with Tommy's background um, to actually confirm that that's a, a fact. Um, he would on to then talk about um, people who suffer from SAD syndrome. There's a really interesting section there where I speak to him about um, people who suffer from SAD, SAD syndrome. Um, and there are so many people, particularly in Ireland actually, and I think I might have a touch of this myself in the winter time, who, who's not depressed whenever it, it's dark at five o'clock and um, it's dark going to work and it's dark coming home. How would you not be depressed? I hear you say. But I thought it was really interesting how, how Tommy thought we could counteract that. And also the role actually then and the link between anxiety, stress and cognitive decline and dementia. That there is an actual link between anxiety and stress that we have in our lives. And then to potentially go on to develop cognitive decline and dementia and things like that. I thought that was really, really interesting. It's really interesting for me, a young man, to think that there is an actual uh, connection there. Um, the data would prove that. And, and also the role of information. I mean, I, I've, I've said this on the record, I've written about this, the role that information plays in every single disease. So Tommy again is saying that, you know, a third of all people who suffer from depression, uh, one of the, the, the key issues there is inflammation. And inflammation um, for people with MS, inflammation uh, causes a real problem with, with myelin and white spots in the brain. I have myself, I have white spots in my brain where um, you can see demyelination. And I thought it was then super interesting the way he pivoted into the importance of diet then and its role in reducing inflammation. And obviously for me, that's why I actually switched to a plant-based diet because I knew that inflammation was uh, potentially targeting uh, and damaging my nerves which would exacerbate NAMS symptoms. So that was one of the main reasons why I decided to transition to a plant-based diet because it's the best diet in terms of fighting inflammation. I thought that was really, really apt for Money and Plants that that Tommy talked about that, um, that the role of diet plays in in reducing inflammation, which obviously then helps us achieve optimum brain health. He then talked about other things and the importance of sleep in achieving optimum brain health and the connection between those who get less than six hours sleep a night and those who then go on to develop dementia. Again, I thought that was really interesting, the, the connection that he made there. And, you know, finally, just to, just to sort of summarize uh, and to close this episode of the podcast, um, I just think it's really worth taking one or two things from what Tommy said and trying to implement them into your own life. I think for me personally, I gained a lot out of that conversation. Uh, 
the final standout thing I would say about Dr. Tommy Wood, and I would encourage you to check him out on YouTube and on the internet. He's got lots of content out there. But he speaks with an incredible amount of humility. He's a very humble person. And for me, I'm always trying to find people who are steeped in humility. There's plenty of cocky people around. Um, there's plenty of people who are uh, have an interesting way with them. But I've been very fortunate. Actually, I probably wouldn't have anybody on the show um, who didn't meet that criteria, to be honest, anyway. So, look, I get a lot of value from that. I hope you did as well. I'm pretty sure you did. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode. Connor at connordevine.com. Send me a DM across any of my social media channels. Two last things. If you liked it, please leave me a review. People are back listening to the podcast. I've got hundreds of people listening now to the show. I don't market this show. I don't take any sponsorship on board. But I really enjoy making it because I know that it is having a positive impact on some of you guys who's listening. So hit me up, let me know, look after yourself, look after each other, and I will catch you again soon.